As you're listening to this episode, let us know if you have any questions for our guest. If so, please send us a message to team at onehaas.org or join our discussion board using our Clever podcast app. You can download the app at clever.fm. Welcome to Sustainability at Haas miniseries, a podcast series looking at how the UC Berkeley Haas School of Business is shaping the next generation of sustainable business leaders. I'm Adriana. And I'm Olivia. And today we're accompanied by Professor Robert Strat. He's also known as Mr. Nordic. And he's the director of the Nordic Center and the Center for Responsible Business at Haas. Also, Janelle Harris, a Haas alum of class of 2017, a consultant at Bridgespan, and a career coach here at Haas. Hi, Robert. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's so great to be here. Thanks for taking the time to chat with us. We're excited for the conversation. Well, I am grateful for the interest, so, uh, so I look forward to it. Great. Well, let's get started with your background. Maybe more than most, you have an interesting and varied background um, with sort of an industrial engineering start working in manufacturing to business and getting an MBA and really becoming a thought leader with even a PhD in sustainability. So just to kick us off, you know, I'm curious to know a little bit more about what motivated those seemingly major pivots in your career. Well, thank you. And first off, thanks for doing some good homework there. Uh, way back, I grew up in a small town in Wisconsin Uh, and then pursued an industrial engineering degree at the University of Wisconsin uh, and joined corporate America uh, and worked uh, with IBM and Boston Scientific for about a decade in a range of roles, manufacturing, supply chain, marketing, uh, strategy, investor relations. And I'm grateful uh, for those experiences. I draw upon them very much today, but I also felt something was missing. And I didn't feel as if I was necessarily pursuing a purpose that I felt good about, that I believed in. And I had the opportunity to go the academic route, was very fortunate to receive a Fulbright scholarship after I completed an MBA to go to Norway. And that changed my life. That set me upon the path that I am today. That included uh, pursuing a PhD and now here at Berkeley Haas and all the work I do that, that is really looking to the Nordic region, not because they have all the answers, but because in my own experience, my time in the Nordics, it revolutionized my American mind, uh, where I came to know what America was more. And I came to understand and get a sense for some of the problems that I felt in America, that there might be some solutions out there. Fascinating. I'm curious, from your MBA, why Norway? So I, uh, the reason I grew up in Wisconsin was my great great grandparents, Knut and Anna Strand, came to the United States from Norway in 1861, uh, and so that's kind of the the start of my family story. Oftentimes, as we tell it, uh, so I always had my mind, or I should say, my eye toward that part of the world, toward Norway and the Nordics more broadly speaking, Denmark, Sweden, Finland, and Iceland. Uh, and as a little boy, my grandma would bring out the Norwegian flags around the holidays and be baking our ideas of what Norwegian food was, uh, whether or not that was current or not is subject to debate, but uh, I always had, had that part of the world on my mind. And then it was during a particular class in my MBA at the University of Minnesota. I did an evening weekend MBA 
program there while I was working in corporate America. And I took a class on world economics. And I couldn't help but notice that there was always this little cluster of countries that seemed to be bucking the trend, that somehow seemed to be balancing economic prosperity with environmental and social prosperity. And my economist professors were telling me, to do such things, there's always going to be a trade-off. You want to do some of that social stuff or some of that environmental stuff, it's going to come at a cost. And here I saw, I was like, well, but what about them? What about that part of the world? So I had my mind toward the Nordics because of family reasons. But then I really developed a real modern interest in the Nordic countries because of that course. And then immediately after my MBA, having the opportunity to go to Norway on a Fulbright and experience it firsthand. Got it. So you had a bit of a family connection, but but also an academic interest. Absolutely. Before we move on, I want to go back to one other area of interest. You mentioned working in corporate America and feeling like something was missing. Were there any sort of pivotal moments during your time in corporate America that you can recall that made you stop and think, you know, maybe, maybe this isn't what I want to do. Maybe, maybe I should go get an MBA. Maybe I need to pivot somehow. Yes, I was, I was an industrial engineer with IBM and I was the labor and capacity planner at an IBM site. It happened to be at the time, the world's largest IBM factory in Rochester, Minnesota. And I found myself treating people, considering people, you know, quote unquote labor, um, no different than the equipment, no different than the capacity planning that I was doing. And it was in the meetings when we had our monthly labor and capacity plans and demand goes up and you need to hire people and get more equipment, demand goes down, you need to lay off people and, and, and retire equipment. And I just found we were treating, and I was discussing, I was part of it, discussing people just as inputs. It was uh, really at a crisis of conscience. And woke up one morning and just the world was a shade of blue. I couldn't get out of bed. And that was, that would just, I, I knew the life I'm living, what I'm doing, it's not what I truly believe inside. And I didn't know exactly what to do with that. I, I didn't know what to make of it or what direction to go. And... That then fast forward to when I had the opportunity to go to uh, the Nordic region and see a very different structure of companies and where employees, by structure, it was not even possible to just treat people as inputs. It was structured where people are valued as human beings. And I'm not saying that, that the people who live in the Nordic region are any better or worse than the Americans, but the structures they had in place better ensured that everybody was going to be treated as a person. And these structures include having employees on the board of directors. Employees had a seat at power by law in the Nordic countries. It includes having mandatory health and safety workers if you have a company over so many people, 15, 20 people. And it included having an ombudsman, uh, people in the structure that you can go to if you have some concerns. And Due to those structures, then, I found that a more humanistic approach to business. I was drawn to that, and that set me off to say, what can we learn and bring back here in the United States? Yeah, I think that is thank, – thank you for sharing that story. I think those moments 
can be really difficult, but also really important learning opportunities and, and wake up calls. So yeah, thanks for sharing. Well, I, I'll just say one thing on that. I feel very fortunate and frankly, very privileged that I've been able to have the discretion and opportunity in my life to pursue a path where I could do something about that. And I feel very much for folks that are in positions, for example, individuals working in those factories uh, that don't necessarily have the freedom that I've had because of, of various reasons in my life, who may be the subject of being treated as inputs and the hollowness and just, but they do it as a duty. They have a family, they have kids that they have to take care of. And that's, um, and so I feel fortunate that I've been able to actually do something about it and, and having the opportunity to be at Berkeley Haas and working with, you know, the leaders of business in the years to come, that's a very privileged position. And I don't take that lightly. Yeah. Thank you so much. And some of us had the opportunity to experience that, that passion that you have for the Nordic region in our trip to Copenhagen. So uh, Professor Strand or Mr. Nordic took us to his uh, loved and uh, special place. And, uh, and uh, we were able to explore from a humanistic perspective, from an educational perspective, from what building is and from like so many visions and angles, the love and the structures that actually work in other places around the world. So I just wanted to hear a little bit more from you on that sense. Like, how exactly do you bring your students along and how do you help students figure out, like, what is your particular, your special why and your purpose in that space? Yeah. Oh, thank you. And, and I can't tell you how grateful I am that I have this opportunity to be at the University of California, Berkeley, a place I've revered all my life, even as a, a little boy growing up in middle of nowhere in Wisconsin, I looked to the University of California, Berkeley, and it is just a beacon of educational opportunity for all, for the many people. And I firmly believe that. And that's in the idea of, of it's an equality of opportunity that at its core is really, you know, we can call that that's the American dream. And I think that the, the University of California, Berkeley is an American dream factory. And so my purpose, what I feel is I firmly believe in educational opportunities for all. And I also have deep, deep concerns about growing inequalities and divides throughout the world and particularly here in the United States of America. And from what I've seen and from what I've experienced, the Nordic countries and their long-standing investments in education for everyone, even when they were the poorest part of Europe, when they were impoverished, when my great-great-grandparents fled Norway because they didn't have food to eat and came to the United States of America seeking opportunities. Even at that time, with what meager resources they had in that part of the world, they invested in education. And they invested, they weren't trying to establish a bunch of elite little institutions. They weren't looking to establish a bunch of little Harvards around the Nordic region. It was education for the peasants, for the many people. And I wouldn't say that we're a bunch of peasants here at UC Berkeley, but we're regular people. And a lot of first-generation university students, more first-generation university students at the University of California, Berkeley, than if you added up all the Ivy Leagues plus Stanford combined. And I think that's beautiful. I love that. And that sort of commitment is the norm across all the Nordics. 
and this idea of how do we ensure that everybody has access to opportunity. And there, I think we have a lot to learn because in the United States, I find us much of the dominant political dialogue is about, in particular in the business community, is about cut taxes, get government off me. And we've made the state our enemy in the United States. And what I see in the Nordic region is they see the state as a tool. And a tool is neither good or bad nor itself. But when it's applied efficiently, a hammer can be very useful. Uh, and that's what I see in the Nordic region. I want to expose that sort of idea to more of us here in the United States. And that's what I, I, I humbly hope we can do in our new program that goes to Copenhagen. And the title of it, of course, as you know, is Sustainable Capitalism in the Nordics? Question mark. Nice. So following up on that one, so what do you learn in this class? And like, how exactly do you communicate this uh, to the students? The class itself that travels to Copenhagen is preceded by 10 torturous, asynchronous weeks where I force our Berkeley Haas students to read my book. And the book is titled Sustainable Vikings, What the Nordics Can Teach Us About Reimagining American Capitalism. And so that is the introduction to the Nordic region, comparisons with America, going right down to ideas of what, when we talk about capitalism, what exactly are we talking about? And kind of level setting there. And looking at it within the book, one chapter, we look at the individual level. So leadership, what you and I can do as individuals, We look at another chapter is the organizational level. So companies, what are company strategies? And, and starting to understand a few companies in the Nordic region, like Orsted, like Carlsberg, like Novo Nordisk, like Ikea, uh, some companies that are doing some really incredible things in sustainability. Um, and then we also will look at the societal level. And here's where I think, where I hope that we can take the great leap in this course, because Business schools in America, we've been predominantly focused at the individual level, leadership development, and at the organizational level, corporate strategy, for example. And those are important, and they will remain important always for business schools. And I would argue we need to move up a level to the societal level and better develop future leaders who don't just worry about themselves and their companies, but also have deep concerns about society. And that relates very much to your comment about Bildung. Because Bildung is this concept that's been incorporated across Nordic education. And effectively, it is saying you take responsibility for yourself and you take responsibility for your community and society as well. That's a super interesting concept. What I'm curious about next is when you're working with students as a professor in your capacity as director at the Center for Responsible Business, How do you help students figure out their why and what motivates them? And maybe in particular, how do you help them connect their personal why to a broader societal and global level why? Oh, that's such a great question. And I, I think about this a lot and I have a response to it. I certainly don't have the answer, but I have a response. Uh, and one is that I'm very much drawn to the framework of the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, the SDGs. And the Sustainable Development Goals, they represent 17 challenges, our 17 greatest challenges we face on this planet. 
Number one, no poverty. Number three, good health, well-being. Number four, quality education. Number 10, reduced inequalities. Number 13, climate action, et cetera, et cetera. Huge challenges, huge problems. Well, the SDGs bring them all together in one framework. And I would contend that the SDGs are an incredible purpose compass. If you look at these challenges, these are problems. These are real problems that we face in this world. And inevitably, each of us is drawn to one or two of them more than the others. We come alive when we think about them. And for me, SDG number four, quality education, and SDG number 10, reduced inequalities, those speak to me. It speaks to me why I want to be at the University of California, Berkeley. Because I think UC Berkeley is an institution, an organization that addresses those grand problems those wicked problems of how is it that we can better ensure that more of us have access to good quality education. Now, someone else is going to be drawn to another SDG, SDG number 13, climate action, for example. Now, I see where my SDGs connect to that. I see where good quality education and where reducing inequalities actually makes it more likely that we can effectively tackle SDG number 13. And somebody else is going to have another perspective on how they tackle number 13. So, how to find one's purpose, I've come to really rely upon the Sustainable Development Goals uh, as a purpose compass. And then from there, we can go in many directions, but it's a good, common, global language. And then I'll also say it brings me back to the Nordics, because when we look at the SDGs and performance against them, and look at the SDG index, for example, that happens every year, since the SDGs were launched in 2015, and lo and behold, year after year, you have a Nordic country that's either number one, number two, number three. They've topped the list for the last so many years. And that's also relates to why I'm excited. A more recent title that I have, in addition to the director of the Center for Responsible Business, is I'm now also the director of the Nordic Center at UC Berkeley, which we've launched just this year. And with good support from many friends, including Barbara Osher, who's a longtime friend of the University of California, Berkeley, and so many folks across UC Berkeley. We believe that UC Berkeley can be the global platform where we shine a bright global spotlight on the Nordics to both challenge us here in the United States of America and also challenge the Nordics because we need their leadership. I love that idea of thinking of the UN SDGs as a purpose compass. I'm curious just to kind of follow up on that. How almost tactically would you recommend students figure out, you know, what, which, which of the SDGs resonates with them most? Maybe you could speak to your process for coming to the realization that UN SDG number four and number 10 were those that you felt most passionate about. I think this is a great exercise that one can do as an individual and then get together in a group. And oftentimes in, in classes or workshops that I have the privilege to lead, I'll put the SDGs up there. So I think the starting point I'd say is look at those 17 SDGs and they're beautifully packaged. It's beautiful suite of, of, of colors and logos that are actually attractive. They're easy to look at. And that's important because it actually, um, that attraction, it draws us to consider them. And so the first thing I do is I just put this colorful framework up uh, project it. And I ask everybody to take three minutes and identify the one. And I force start by saying the one that you're most drawn to. 
And I like saying the one because it's oftentimes people, it's very hard for them to say one. They're going to find two. But that's the great starting point for a conversation. Oh, I'm sorry. You know what I do oftentimes even before that scene, whether it's the one you're drawn to, I start by saying, which is the most pressing SDG? Which is the biggest challenge that we face in the world? Now, oftentimes people were colored by what we're most passionate about. So if I'll say SDG number 13, climate action is the most pressing problem. And lo and behold, when I say, what's the one that I come alive and most passionate about myself, it'd be SDG 13 oftentimes. And I like starting actually at that standpoint of what's the biggest, most pressing problem, because then we have a discussion and debate between people who will say, no, I believe SDG number four is the most pressing problem. And here's why. No, no, no. SDG 13 is the most pressing problem. Here's why. People naturally just come alive. And then by extension of that, you can see clearly you care about this one more than the others. And it's not that one is right or wrong as being the most pressing problem, but these are wicked problems. And by definition, a wicked problem is interconnected with other wicked problems. And this exercise can help us understand which is the one that I'm the most passionate about. Yeah, I think there is also so much under the surface driving this question of, of what are you most passionate about? I think other questions that come to mind and, and curious to know if this is something that you will work into the discussion. But, you know, I would think about you know, which of these makes me most upset? Which of these do I feel like I am best equipped to contribute to? Even my experiences and my skills. So I think there's just a really interesting list of questions that you can ask yourself when when looking at this framework and, and thinking about the UN SDGs as a purpose compass. Olivia, I, I couldn't agree more. And when I say passionate, that passion can be anger. And I frankly, I'm angry at the inequalities that are only growing in the United States of America. It angers me from a sense of fairness and justice. And it angers me if I go back to my industrial engineering days as an efficiency we're inefficient. The more that we allow inequality to grow and exasperate, it undermines our ability to efficiently deliver services in American society and frankly, run a democracy. We are undermining our own democracy by allowing such inequalities. And that angers me. Absolutely. And then I want to do something about it. And I feel like being at UC Berkeley, being surrounded by such wonderful, talented, passionate students, I feel like I can fulfill my purpose best by being part of this and, and helping to be a facilitator of sorts for conversations and explorations on what might we do about it. Yeah, I, and I really like your point about the interconnectedness because it makes me think about like how do you how do you bring up the system thinking view and the societal level view of the SDGs, right? So if like to me, like climate change is my driver, but I see like the the potential with my build on the <laughs> thought and ideas and, and all that into the fundamental education system. So like, how do I connect both sides of the coin and how do I bring the passions into like, uh, what I love the most is like, how do I develop the development world? Right. So like, how do I connect all of those into one, uh, and, and create it as a driver for my life. So that's, that's really, really interesting. So I was wondering like, yeah, what is your point uh, of like, what is your thought about connecting the systems thinking yes. and the SDGs and, and all that together? You're, 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 you're 100% correct. We need a systems view of the world. 
And we've for too long atomized business, atomized our society, and we need a systems perspective. And that's the SDGs really helps us to see the problems, their interconnections. And of course, a system is a series of interconnections of elements within it. And if we're just looking at the elements, we miss the point, we miss seeing the interconnections, and also we miss the overall purpose. And I think that this kind of a systems thinking focus forces us to ask, what's the purpose of this system? And I'm really drawn to the offerings of Danella Meadows, thinking in systems. And I'm also, I'll say, for all my anger, I also have such hope because, and I look at Meadows when she asks, you know, how do you change a system? And, you know, do you try to change all the elements first? You try to change all the interconnections? And she wisely brings us to the point of saying, first, we have to understand the paradigm in which that system was born. And a paradigm, you could also call it a mindset. And here is where I fear that we in the United States of America have developed a me, me, me mindset. Hyper-individualism, hyper-selfish, focused on myself. We need what I would call in a Nordic context, which is still you have individual responsibility. There is still an importance for me. But they've recognized that if they build systems for the we, each of us, me, will benefit. So I see it as a me, we, me mindset. And how do you actually, I argue that America, we're stuck in a prisoner's dilemma where each of us clouded by our own me, 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 selfish interest, we are preventing ourselves from coming together, building systems that actually would benefit each of us. And the best way to get out of a prisoner's dilemma is to demonstrate to each individualistic, selfish actor that it's actually in their own interest to cooperate. And that's my humble hope by bringing folks to the Nordic region to see when people come together and actually build systems and establish smart policies to do things like ensure universal access to education, universal access to healthcare, and then they efficiently run those systems, each of the individuals within the Nordic context, they benefit. And those sorts of seeing that firsthand is the best way I know how, how we can provoke change here in the United States. Fascinating. So, Robert, thank you so much for your time. I think we're running out of time, but I just wanted one more thing from you. What is your takeaway and your burning question? As you asked us in every single class, I just want to get uh, that in a couple of sentences. Yeah, I love that exercise. And now you're turning it on me. The takeaway and the burning question. I'll say that my, 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 my takeaway or a sort of summation piece here. Um, a lot of this relates to ideas of freedom and democracy. And I believe in the idea of the land of the free. I firmly believe that. I love that narrative. I believe in the American dream, the American dream for everyone. And so that's my takeaway is that we don't need to invent new language here in the United States of America. We don't need any other narratives. But my burning question is, do we have the courage and the wherewithal and the perseverance and are willing to put in the hard work to ensure that we truly are the land of the free, to ensure that we in the United States of America make it possible where everybody, independent of who they are, where they're coming from, who their family is, everybody has access to realize the American dream. That's my burning question. And I pose it as a challenge. Uh, and here I want to appeal to that competitive American spirit because frankly, we're getting beat at the American dream. 
The American dream is a reality in the Nordic countries. Every child, independent of their background, has access to good quality education and can flourish. I want to appeal to the competitive spirit of Americans and say we should be the global leader in the American dream. We're America, for God's sakes. We should be the American dream leaders. So that's my burning question. Are we up for the challenge? Such a great question. I am also thinking about what you said, um, how, how you described the challenge as being stuck in a prisoner's dilemma. Um, and that is something that I think I'll take away from this conversation and, and continue to think about. Well, I'm grateful to have had the opportunity here. And, uh, and, and please also do sign up for the mailing list at the Nordic Center at UC Berkeley. We're going to have a lot of events uh, going forward. And also, here's a call for help. We need help to ensure that the Nordic Center lives on beyond our two-year probationary period. Uh, so we need supporters out there. Um, so if anybody's interested in reaching me, my email's easy. It's Mr. Nordic at berkeley.edu. So I look forward to hearing from you. So now I'll shift gears and start our conversation with Janelle. Janelle is a manager at Bridgespan, where she leads engagements with social impact organizations and a career coach at Berkeley Haas, where she works with mission-driven leaders. We'll be talking with Janelle about how we can find purpose and meaning in our career search. Welcome to the show, Janelle. Thank you so much for having me. It's our pleasure. Well, let's kick it off by talking a little bit about your background and your career journey. We would love if you could share a little bit about your path to Haas and then maybe a bit about your time during Haas. Okay, that sounds great. So prior to joining Haas, I had spent my entire career in the social sector. I graduated from college. I'm going to date myself in 08. And I knew coming out of college that I wanted to work in like a path that involved service. I didn't quite have a vision for what that would look like, but I knew I wanted to help other people. So I found myself working at Teach for America on staff at first. And I initially was pretty resistant to the idea of being a teacher because I had witnessed my mother have her entire career in education and all the ups and downs of being a teacher and working at different capacities at schools. Um, working at Teach for America um, really was really compelling and really got me on board with this idea that transforming education was a path to greater equity in the U.S. And so after a, a year and a half of working on staff, I became a teacher, ended up teaching for three years, seventh grade math, also for the first two years focusing on students with special needs. And so during my time in the classroom, I, I was open to the possibility that maybe I would just love teaching and want to teach forever. But I also tried to keep my eyes and ears like just alert to other dimensions of education that were really compelling or that might give me a clue as to where I should go next. During my training as a teacher, there was a piece of advice I received that really stuck with me and, and still sticks with me to this day. She was someone who worked at a pretty prominent charter school in Atlanta called the Ron Clark Academy. And I remember her saying, as advice for those of us who were not quite sure what we wanted to do after we completed our two-year agreement with Teach America, she said to pay attention while we're in the classroom to what angers us. Because she said that, you know, you're going to be placed in um, schools that have a lot of disadvantage and your students will be in challenging situations. And a lot of what you see will be incredibly heartbreaking. But pay attention to those things that just continuously light you up and spark anger, because that's a clue as to where you are best positioned to be a service. So... In the classroom, I just kept finding myself getting really frustrated by two things, leadership 
And what, at the time, I didn't have the language for it. I didn't even know strategy was a thing, but it was just like an absence of strategic decision-making. My school, in spite of being like one of the lowest performing schools in the state of Georgia, had a ton of really passionate and like very well-educated educators in the building, people with multiple master's degrees and PhDs. And we just could not turn things around in a way that felt meaningful. And it just got me really wondering, like, how do other companies and industries solve problems? Because like the way that we're doing this feels like we're throwing things at the wall to see what sticks and nothing's really working. And long story short, I arrived at campus at Haas, really excited about the idea of becoming a strategist and specifically wanting to enter consulting because how else does one become a strategist? At least that's how I thought at the time. And really like curated all of my coursework to focus on like what I felt like would give me the strongest set of skills to be, become a strategist. Awesome. Well, you know, I'm just as a, as a follow-up to that, I'm, I'm curious where, where did you do your internship while you were at Haas and how did that maybe shape your idea of what you wanted to do after, or was it something that generally reinforced your, your idea of, of what you wanted to do? Yeah. So I came in like with tunnel vision. I only wanted to do consulting. So I was on the consulting bandwagon from day one and all in on uh, case prep, et cetera. So I interviewed with almost every consulting firm that came on campus in the fall. And I landed an internship with Deloitte. I ended up, it was an SM strategy consulting, specifically focusing on some of their like tech engagements and focusing on like sourcing and procurement. So like supply chain to someone who is like more familiar with supply chain, the project might have seemed very boring. But for me, this was the first like private sector project I'd really had ever done professionally. And it was really intellectually intriguing. The summer was pretty intense. It was a lot of travel, like the, the traditional weekly consulting travel, really intense pace of work, um, long hours. And I was still learning a lot. I was doing a lot of new things while learning new things. And so I, like, I learned a lot from that experience, but did not end the summer feeling like like for-profit consulting was probably the best path for me. I did end feeling still thinking that strategy was what I wanted to do, but just had mixed feelings about whether or not consulting was the right path. Yeah, I was going to ask. I think one of the things that's most important, especially during the summer internship when you're really testing out a hypothesis is to regularly tap into how are you feeling and you know how does this work make you feel are you excited to get up every day and go to work <laughs> I, so I'm, I'm curious how how did you feel while you were working at Deloitte yeah. in, in supply chain <laughs> I had a number of existential crises that summer um, where I was calling my so I did management leaders of tomorrow MLT's program before entering Haas and they provide support while you're in school as well. So I had a coach and I called her a number of times, just like having a m mini meltdowns around like, I don't really feel like this is meaningful. I don't feel like I'm, my work really matters. I'm not really making a difference. Um, and that was really the first time I had to contend with that possibility of like, what is it, what does it actually feel like to do work that's not in the social sector? Part of what drew me to teaching was like, I really wanted to be in the trenches and like, I was doing an internship at like a Fortune 100 company, helping them save like maybe $8 million, right, out of like a really big denominator by transforming their supply chain processes. Like it was intellectually cool and interesting to me. 
And yes, it would have like a qualitative effect on um, their business, but it just didn't feel as like inspiring or motivating. And I was, that's something I really grappled with too, like about, could I actually see myself doing this work? And could I like come up with a story that would make this feel meaningful for me? And that was a challenge. Yeah. I imagine, you know, $8 million might have been a drop in the bucket for a Fortune 100 company, but imagine you were thinking, you know, what, how far could $8 million go at a school or in a, in a school district? Um, so I, I imagine that would be challenging. It just, it kind of sparked like an internal dialogue with myself about like, the type of work I really wanted to do. And I think at that time, I was also thinking very binary about how I could be a strategist. It felt like it really felt like it had to be in the private sector. I didn't have a vision yet for like doing strategy in the social sector. I'd never even heard of people doing that really. So I felt a little bit, I definitely felt a little bit stuck, like so stuck that I actually gave myself permission to not recruit that fall, my second year. I studied abroad in Barcelona. I just lived my best life. I traveled um, and I just told myself I will just deal with my career when I get back. I did, however, try to focus on courses while I was studying abroad at ESA that were like still strategy focused because I knew that that was still what I wanted to do, but I just paused on the recruiting front to give myself some time to just take it all in and reflect. That existential crisis <laughs> sounds so familiar. <laughs> Glad to hear it wasn't just me. <laughs> yeah. I feel like a lot of us go through that, especially going to through like a program like has like exploring, understanding ourselves and viewing like ourselves from different angles. That like that to me has been a fascinating path. And and I just want to hear like what were those critical moments in your path through has that really made you so like you mentioned your work at Deloitte but like what were things that that were like so critical that were like okay I have just have to stop slow down take it in or maybe like an experience that really triggered you to like think differently beyond the strategy or be beyond the consulting yeah. role um I think there'll probably be two things and most of it still kind of revolves around that summer um for starters, I started to have a little bit of dread leading up to the summer. Like I had just worked so hard, like uh, with not a lot of sleep, like hours and hours of case prep and, you know, had felt very triumphant when I got the offer and then had, you know, a really casual spring because I didn't have to recruit anymore. Um, but then as the weeks were leading up to the internship, I just got this like gut feeling that this might not be what I was expecting it to be. And I think that kind of set the tone for the summer of just feeling a little bit thrown off. And then secondly, like I haven't really shared this publicly, but it feels relevant and I'll just, I'll just share. I didn't actually get an offer to come back to Deloitte at the end of the summer. I wasn't totally shocked because I, I just, it was like the work was hard and it was so new for me. Um, but I was still like shocked because I'm a high achiever and like not used to not getting opportunities. So like it, it felt very rare for someone to say like, you worked really hard at this thing and we're still not going to take you. And I was like embarrassed because like when I came back to campus, the first thing people said to me was like, how's your summer? Did you get an offer? Are you going to go back? And I was just like, oh my God, I don't want to talk about this. I just like invaded the question and didn't really talk about it. So both of those pieces of the experience like really started to have me question like, is this the right path for me? Because it felt pretty discouraging to like have worked so hard for something. And then it just, it didn't, it just didn't feel great. And then, then, and then I also like didn't get that like external validation that I was on the right path. So you ended up 
landing a full-time role with Bridgespan. I'm curious, in the lead up to your start date, did you have a different feeling? Was there, you know, a little bit more excitement or feeling that, you know, this is this is the right path. This is where I want to go. Yeah. And I also felt like a little bit of surprise because it's the opportunity with Bridgeband wasn't one I engineered. It felt more like a combination of like serendipity and like divine intervention. And like there was like a puppet master at play in the background that had kind of like pieced this together because it wasn't even a solution that I invented. Like at no time during my time at Haas did it occur to me like, oh, strategy would still be a great fit. And I should really think about doing that in the social sector, which I know doesn't sound like it makes any sense because I spent my entire career in the social sector. But I still had just had this like very narrow view of what was possible in terms of like the path it might look like to become a strategist. And um, one of my classmates actually, who also did Teach for America, who was also on the consulting path, was case prepping um, with me that spring leading up to graduation. And like, bless her heart, was, like, still working with me, even though she had, like, then had a job offer. And she suggested that I consider Bridgespan. Connected me with an alum who was in her, I think, second year at Bridgespan. We had coffee. She referred me. And then I started the interview process. And that process also just felt so different. It was, like, the most pleasant, calm interview experience I'd ever had. Like, just so many, the way it all lined up for me again, like just continuously felt like this like sense of surprise, like, oh, it doesn't actually have to feel so hard. Like I could be in an interview and feel very confident and just the entire experience felt different in a way that kind of all along made me feel more sure like, okay, this is where I'm supposed to be. Nice. Yeah. So since, since you left Haas and uh, like your vision has transformed and transitioned through like your experience, right? <laughs> So how has that vision transformed into like more of a coaching role and what you do in that space? <laughs> I'll try to tell that story neatly. So in parallel to um, my consulting path and my journey at Haas, I was also in this biggest journey of like deep introspection and healing and personal development. And it, it actually truly like got its, its roots were planted during my first year at Haas. And I had a reflection probably like a year or two into my time at Bridgespan that I would probably be most satisfied with my career if I could somehow find the intersection of like being of service um, combined with like wellness and personal development. And I had like no idea what that would look like. That also kind of triggered another set of like yeah, internal <laughs> existential questions that I was thinking things like, should I be working at Headspace on their strategy team? Like, do I need to look for a new job? Um, what does it actually look like to to center strategy and wellness, personal development, but also being a service in that way? And so I honestly just started to really sit with that question. I wanted like to feel like I was both being of service, but also like really pursuing my calling and my purpose. I started to read a book called The Calling by a really well-known coach. Uh, her name is Ra Goddess. And um, she also actually typically coaches folks in the social sector. And it was really during the time of reading that book and sitting with these questions of like, how am I best called to serve that I had this insight about um, becoming a coach. And so I literally had the idea, like I should take a coach training, thought it over maybe for like a couple of days, Googled some programs and like within a few weeks was enrolled and started this path in 2020. Yeah, it was really fast. It was like once I heard the answer, it just 
resonated so deeply, I didn't really need to like mull it over. I just took action. I think something you said that's really interesting to me is, you know, about the role of introspection in your journey and coming to the realization that, you know, maybe this job, this, you know, dream job at Bridgespan, this role in strategy and social sector consulting that might have felt perfect on paper was still maybe not quite enough is so important. And I think introspection looks different for for everybody, but could you maybe speak a little bit about what introspection looks like for you? What sort of, you know, how do you find time to think about, you know, how, I, I guess, to, to do that introspective work? Yeah. I can talk about how it started and then what it looks like now. They're very different. Um, but in business school, what it looked like was, I was always been an early riser. So it typically looked like me waking up at like five or five thirty, and I would really refuse to do anything school or work related until like, I think sometimes I said, I might give myself a, a boundary of like, you cannot look at email until 8 a.m. And so I would use the time in the morning for reading and journaling. I actually began my journaling practice fall of my first year, and I still journal every morning to this day. And I would read from like books on psychology and spirituality and personal development, just things that were like, help me grapple with questions, but also like motivational and really about like expanding my mindset. That was particularly important during, I feel like the recruiting process um, when I was just so anxious. And so I would really, those were kind of like the two biggest ways. Since then, it's expanded to include therapy. And I have a coach who I've been working with for two years. I meditate now. I'm like a daily meditation practice. So those are kind of the the early pieces of it. And then it's just kind of expanded since then. That's awesome. I think just speaking personally, I I was working in consulting before coming to Haas. And I remember feeling like I just had no time to even think about what I wanted to do next. And I actually had to take a six-month sabbatical. And during that time, I was just amazed at the the number of thoughts that just came up when I had mind-wandering time. So I think, you know, since then, I obviously don't want to have to take a sabbatical every few years. Um, I think I one of one of the things I'm striving to do is work that mind-wandering time into my day or my week. I will also say that maybe it's okay to take to be the type of person who does just need a sabbatical every so often. I took a two-month I come from a sabbatical last year. And I actually remember telling my doctor that I'm doing that. And her reaction was so funny to me. She was like, oh yeah, like that just might be something you have to do from now on every year or so. Just take two months off. I was like, that's a thing. I didn't know that people just did that, but great. Yeah, I highly recommend. Well, great. So um, shifting gears a little bit, I wanted to talk about a line that I actually read in your LinkedIn profile when we were first connecting. You said all social justice work is radically imaginative because we are co-creating a world we have never seen before. And I was so struck by that because, you know, I have been sort of exploring the intersection of sustainability and social impact in my time at Haas. I think sustainability work is and, you know, should should be even more linked with social justice work. So I think I see a lot of parallels in myself and my classmates with you know, just being in a space where we we also are striving to co-create a world we have never seen before. And 
I think a lot of these sort of mission-driven leaders who come to Haas go on to experience some frustration when they're in the workforce with the limits of what the organizations they join are, are willing to do. So I'm curious, your path has been, you know, working at Bridgespan, working with social impact organizations. Um, you know, maybe it's a little bit different, but I know you work with Haas students, maybe, you know, past and present. And I'm curious, you know, how have you grappled with those frustrations? How have you maybe helped others work through some of those frustrations? Yeah. Well, this is going to sound super consultancy, but I think at its core, it's really about having your own clear sense and your own personal theory of change. And that's like a fancy way of saying like, knowing what your vision is and really understanding and believing in like your own definition of your purpose and how the work you're doing is in service of that. It's really about like being tightly connected to the bigger picture, which I think makes it easier to navigate those like day-to-day frustrations. Um, I want to share some context on the radically imaginative part of uh, my bio <laughs> on LinkedIn. I, I came up with that concept. Um, I really have to credit two writers and activists, um, Adrienne Marie Brown and Walida Imarisha. They actually co-developed an anthology that looks at uh, Octavia Butler's writing and the, the intersection of science fiction with um, social justice movements. And so there's this line that there's like a, a way that they characterize their work that they both come back to. But I pulled up some writing from Walida Imarisha. And basically what she says is to quote, when we talk about a world without prisons, a world without police violence, a world where everyone has food, clothing, shelter, quality education, a world free of white supremacy, patriarchy, capitalism, heterosexism, we are talking about a world that doesn't currently exist. But collectively dreaming up one that does means that we can begin building it into existence. And so that is why they essentially saying that all organizing or replace the word organizing with social impact work is in essence science fiction, because we are quite literally trying to co-create a world that we have not ever seen before and that does not currently exist, even though there might be like sparks of possibility. And coming across that quote for me, like really just expanded my whole world. Like it really helped me understand what my coaching and my, my strategy consulting work is in service of. And it's really in service of like radical imagination, like dreaming up new possibilities, envisioning who we have to become in order to like have a bigger impact, to live really full and robust lives and like recognizing that we're all in service of something so much bigger. So like as hard as we each individually work, we're only one of, you know, potentially thousands and generations of contributors to that vision. And so I think in addition to having a vision, dealing with the frustration also requires like a bit of acceptance like existentially um, the role that we each play and that some of the work we're doing is going to continue beyond even our own lifetimes. I think like being really rooted in that helps a lot. That is so beautiful and powerful. Um, Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. I'm glad that you you pulled up the text. I love that. Yeah, it is impressive. And uh, I just wanted to hear a little bit more. So as a coach of mission-driven leaders, how do you coach... Uh, yeah, future leaders to embody this radical imagination. I'm just super curious about like, yeah, how does this vision look like for you? Yeah, I think like, especially when, you know, most of us are are working within the system. And so our day to day is like maybe about the numbers and 
um, the PNL and, and stuff like that. The way that I typically see the frustration panning out is people really hitting their limits with regards to like burnout, overworking, feeling like the problems that they're working in service of are so big that who are they to like stop working at five or like who are they to set limits on how much they're willing to work and like really grappling with that. Like this, this is like actually more important than me and my personal wellness. Like how can I like set boundaries and not also feel like tons of guilt or so a lot of times when I'm working with folks in the social sector, that's like one of the biggest things we're working through is what does it look like to do this work and to do so in a way that is nourishing and doesn't leave us like wiped out? And how do we both hold like the sacredness and importance of this big, important work we're doing and like take care of ourselves and feel permission to do that too? So, I mean, that's like the biggest way that it shows up in the way that I coach folks and um, like giving themselves permission to set those boundaries and like pace themselves. Because the reality is that when we don't, like our bodies will eventually force us to. And so a lot of the times people I'm coaching, even myself included, have hit those walls because our bodies like would not let us continue overworking and like self-sacrificing in that way. And we were almost like forced to figure out another way <laughs> to show up. Yeah, that that hit home like very much for me. I'm like even a weekend student, working, uh, studying, being a mother, and having so many arms and legs that I feel like the work like I'm, I'm balancing everything in a in a daily basis and prioritizing a daily basis and sometimes like having that time and stopping and hearing you talk about like sabbaticals and taking time off. Um, I actually just quit my job, so <laughs> I can take a little bit of of drifting time and space. But yeah, it is it is impressive. And yeah, how how do you like just hit the limits and set the boundaries and start like thinking about you in order to be able to help others and elevate others in a different angle? So thank you for sharing. Well, I guess just to sort of wrap up our time with you, Janelle, is there any other advice or words of wisdom that you have for current or prospective Haas students who are you know, at a, an exciting time in their career where they're maybe pivoting or thinking about what's next? Yeah. I mean, I have the like privilege of hindsight. So I can now see how all these things fit together several years later. But at the time, right, I didn't have any any clue like where my path was heading. There's a quote. <laughs> I'm laughing because the quote is from The Secret, the movie, um, which is like all about this idea of manifestation. And um, and so some people don't think the movie has really anything credible in it, but and others do. But that's neither here nor there. But the quote in the movie that they say is like, you could drive from California to New York City in the dark, pitch black, no lights. But as long as your car has the headlights and you can see like the next 10 to 20 feet, like you could drive 3000 miles that way and get there safely. And I think that's actually exactly the same way that my path and most of our paths evolve is like we actually cannot see much further than that. And I think that we have been like kind of swindled into believing that we need to have these big plans, like five, 10 year plans. And like, I think it's more about potentially understanding your North Star, as we would say at Birchman, like, what is your vision? Do you have any sense of where you think, what is your best guess about where you'd most like to be or the type of work you'd most like to be doing? Or if you can't even get there, like the type of world you'd most like to see exist that you would be actually really excited about being in service of creating. And then like trusting that 
things will kind of fall into place that you'll meet the people, conversations will happen, opportunities will present themselves that will help you get to that path. And that the path itself will be probably incredibly windy and that you can't overly engineer it intellectually. It is like a lot of self-trust, I think, to be discerning about which opportunities are truly in service. But like knowing that you're going from California to New York and trusting that you'll be able to at least see the next 20 feet the way through, that's like the best metaphor I can, ex- I can offer for how to think about navigating that ambiguity. Because it can certainly feel like really, like you're lost a lot of that time. But I know I certainly felt like that. I think that's the perfect metaphor. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, the takeaway for me is just the importance of self-trust and patience, um, which which definitely resonates as a graduating second year in uh, the full-time MBA program. So thank you so much, Janelle. This was such a pleasure. We really appreciate you making the time. Thank you so much to Robert Strand, aka Mr. Nordic, and Janelle Harris for sharing your story and your passion with us, and for your sage advice on how current and prospective MBA students can work toward finding purpose and meaning in our careers. And to our audience, thank you so much for tuning in to the last episode of the Sustainability at Haas miniseries. We hope that you learn from our speakers how UC Berkeley Haas School of Business is driving the development of sustainability leaders through our curriculum, how faculty are doing awesome research, and how alumni are getting and creating careers in sustainability. <laughs>